You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we're looking together at chapter 8 in the book of Acts. You'll find this on page 916 of the Pew Bible. And we'll be reading together verses 9 through 25. Acts chapter 8. Verses 9 through 25. Hear the word of God. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, this text, like others before it, shows us how the kingdom of God continued to advance. It has moved out from Jerusalem now to the region of Judea and Samaria. But it might be confusing because the baptized Samaritans had not received the Spirit. It seems contrary, doesn't it, to what the New Testament teaches about the nature of conversion. For example, in Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what Paul does there is he links the indwelling spirit with belief in the gospel. There's no gap. So what about the situation 
that Luke describes for us in this chapter. In verse 12, it says, they believed the good news and were baptized. Four verses later, verse 16, it says the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. So are we to conclude that this teaches some sort of second blessing? That is to say, are sinners converted and then only later filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I think to understand, we have to recognize the uniqueness of the apostolic era. You see, the book of Acts, it's not a collection of episodes from the past glory days of the church, as some have said. Many see this and think it's evidence for a second blessing. They, they see the experience of the Samaritans as normative, or as Elder Van Drunen said, prescriptive for all believers. The gospel's preached, people believe, they're baptized, and then at some point, they receive the Spirit. But my old teacher and professor, Dr. Gaffin, said that the book of Acts is not a loose anthology of vignettes from the good old days when Christians were really Christians. The book of Acts is a carefully crafted, completed history of the apostolic spread of the gospel. The gospel continued to spread throughout the world, but it was the apostolic spread. It was unique. Luke was concerned to write a finished account of this spread. Note how it concludes later on at the end of the book, Paul ministering unhindered in Rome. At that point, the ends of the earth. So this text that we're looking at this morning is not intended to establish a pattern for the Christian life. It shows how the next phase of the kingdom advanced in that region. In fulfillment of Jesus' prediction, the Spirit fell upon the believers in Samaria. What an incredible thing. The Pentecost phenomenon is moving out from Jerusalem and including the half-breeds, the Samaritans, the despised Samaritans. And it wouldn't be long before the Gentiles themselves would receive the Spirit, Cornelius, for example. So now in this post-apostolic era, Converts are sealed with the Spirit the moment they believe. You're a believer, you're filled with the Spirit. And it was during this unique period in Samaria that Simon heard the gospel. Luke tells us that he was a magician. And what a magician he was. His skill was such that he had captivated all the people of Samaria. He practiced sorcery, not just tricks. And he astounded them with his magic arts. And he claimed to be somebody great. The crowds were in awe of him. And they viewed him as the great power of God. But you see, all of that changed when Philip came and, and proclaimed the good news. From the least to the greatest, they had listened to Simon, but no longer Verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And here were these miracles of Philip that rivaled and surpassed Simon's magic, and he preached 
Jesus. Whereas Simon boasted of himself, Philip proclaimed the Christ. And Simon himself was so gripped by the gospel that he believed. And he was baptized. And as he saw these miraculous signs accompanying Philip's preaching, he was amazed. He who had amazed others was himself now utterly astounded. And I don't think Simon was pretending, to be honest with you. I differ with Simon commentators, I realize, but I don't think he was pretending. I think he was sincerely astonished. But his astonishment can't be equated with true saving faith. And the real showstopper was when Peter and John arrived to lay their hands on the converts. They were dispatched to investigate what was taking place. And John Stott has this interesting insight. He says this, It was particularly appropriate that one of them was John. Since Luke describes him in his gospel as wanting on one occasion to call fire down from heaven to consume a Samaritan city. So he comes. And he's instrumental in the salvation of none other but the Samaritans. They're instruments through whom God is granting the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Luke doesn't elaborate on what kind of evidence was given. You know, at Pentecost, we saw tongues of fire and speaking in foreign languages and mass repentance. And perhaps there were similar phenomena here. I don't know. We're not told. But Simon witnessed something, some stunning phenomena that even more amazed him. And as a sorcerer, he recognized the extraordinary power that was linked with these men. He had never seen such things. He had never experienced that kind of power. So, as the text tells us, he offered them money. He wanted to buy this power. Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And it seems, at least at this point, that his view of Christianity was little more than high-powered sorcery. He wanted to be like an apostle. His greed and ambition were exerting themselves in a remarkable way. And immediately Peter rebuked him for thinking that God's gift could be bought. May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. A bold, direct, public rebuke. Awfully embarrassing. The man whom the multitudes had considered great was here being humbled. He was trying to purchase what from its very nature can only be a free gift. Because the Holy Spirit cannot be bought. The Holy Spirit cannot be sold like a common commodity. He's God. In his being, he's infinite. And he's eternal. And he's unchangeable. The Bible says he's clothed with splendor and majesty. And he's the one who stretched out the heavens like a tent. And yet here is Simon trying to manipulate the Holy Spirit. And his greed and his ambition were destroying him. There was so much of the magician left in him. 
He saw Christianity through the magician's eyes, not the eyes of faith. And so Peter points out plainly that Simon's heart was not right before God. He needed to repent or face the very real possibility of perishing in his sin. I see, he said, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, we don't use language like that anymore. The gall of bitterness, what is that? It's gallbladder bile. It's the bitter center of bitterness in your heart. Sin is bitter. And the bond of iniquity likens sin to a chain that binds a person's soul. The unbeliever is bound over to God's judgment by the guilt of his sin. And so the point is that Simon was still struggling with the deep inbred sin of greed. He professed belief in Christ, but either it was very weak or it was insincere. He listened to Philip, he submitted to baptism, he joined the church, but was he saved? We're not sure. But one thing this does show is that baptism is not something which has the power to affect salvation. A man can be baptized and yet be in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He can sit in the pew, read his Bible, sing the songs, and say his prayers. And all these things are good, but they can't be equated with salvation. A person is truly saved from the wrath to come if he receives Jesus into his heart. He turns from his sins to God in sincere repentance, and he trusts in and relies upon Christ. That's salvation. And I think it's noteworthy that Simon the magician asked the apostles to intercede for him. He recognized the danger. And perhaps that was the start of true repentance and saving faith. We're not told. God leaves us here to contemplate the danger in which Simon stood. Danger. Do you know that I don't know about his soul, but his legacy leaves much to be desired. Do you recognize that simony comes from this passage? He stands there as a dire warning against the destructive nature of greed, which is something that every one of us has to be careful to avoid. Greed. In each one of us, there are the remnants of greed that covets the world's prizes. It can express itself in a myriad of ways, even as blatant as offering money for the Holy Spirit. But I think there are three categories of people who are especially prone to this sin of greed. First, the prosperous. Those who enjoy the advantages of wealth and appreciate the world's comforts. They're tempted to get caught up in the plan to increase their wealth and to manage their vast wealth and money. Rather than becoming more generous, they grow more greedy like, who else? Ebenezer Scrooge. If riches increase, we're told, set not your heart on them. The prosperous. But secondly, the elderly. You might be surprised at that. But with diminished strength, those of us who are getting older are vulnerable more and more to the lust of the eyes. In our younger years, our innate depravity had many channels to flow through, right? 
But when our strength decays and our stamina wanes, these other channels dry up. And what's left? The lust of the eyes. Covetousness. How sad to see an elderly person who's dominated by greed. And God does appoint means to help combat this sin, and by grace, by his grace, we will. But it's the prosperous, it's the elderly, and then the third, the religious. Religious people, those who are able to keep their greed hidden from others, right? Whether it's sincere or not, such people want to appear godly. We all want to. I have no credibility if I'm profane or unchaste or deceitful or a drunkard. You can see that. So we avoid those grosser sins and greed runs deep. You know something? Judas Iscariot fooled his fellow apostles while he was stealing from the money bag. He's the one who complained about Mary using that expensive ointment on Jesus because he was a thief. And three years of intimate fellowship and friendship and the others never knew. They never suspected him. What's interesting is that we all struggle with greed to one degree or another and some of us are in more than one of those categories. God knows this and he's provided a remedy for it in the cross of Jesus Christ. It helps, I think, to often meditate upon and apply to oneself the cross of Christ. Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Greed. Our salvation was accomplished by a loving, crucified Savior, and that's the ground of Paul's hopes. That's what he preached. He knew its power to wean him from the world and to whet his appetite for heaven. You know, false teachers, you see them and so do I. You can turn the TV on any day and see them. They're concerned about the things of the world, money, Jets, whatever the case may be. They accommodate their religion to suit their covetous interests. Paul was a different animal. He learned to be indifferent to the world. It was the rich fruit of meditating much upon the cross of Christ. The world's crucified to me and I to the world. He wasn't ashamed of it. He wasn't afraid to own it. He was, in fact, glorying in it, this crucified Savior. He knew how the world treated Jesus and how it viewed Jesus, and he didn't want to have any part of it. So that was Simon. It's a lesson for all of us, but I also think from this passage that you and I should be encouraged by what it teaches about God's sovereignty. That word sovereignty, it means that he has a right to do whatever he pleases. That's what it means. Simon's wish to manipulate the power of the Holy Spirit was totally absurd. Do you know what Psalm 50 says about the Lord? The mighty one. God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. 
sovereign. From the east to the west, across the globe, he rules with sovereign power. So Simon was behaving like a fool. God cannot be possessed or manipulated. He cannot be controlled or influenced by anything outside of himself. David says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps because he is sovereign. He created the heaven and the earth. He laid the foundation of the world. He fixed the boundaries of the universe and he spoke and the cosmos stood firm. And what that means for you and me is that his purpose stands firm. Any attempt to manipulate him is not only foolish, it's sinful. Everything we see, everything we experience depends on his sovereign will. Every sparrow, every hair, every birth and death, he ordains all of it. This is the sovereign God whom Simon, the magician, tried to control and how thankful you and I should be when our heavenly Father reigns supreme. Referring to his own sheep, Jesus said this, My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, does anybody here think this morning that the Father will not cherish and protect his gift to the Son? You. We can't even begin to comprehend the love that he has for the Lord Jesus. He gave his son a numerous flock among, we, among whom we've been numbered. So neither the father nor the son will ever permit his flock to perish. He who touches you, he says, touches the apple of my eye. True believers are never lost. They're the objects of the Father's special care, and He is sovereign in choice, and He's sovereign in preservation. Neither the devil, nor the false teacher, nor the evil persecutor, nor even yourself will be able to snatch you out of His hand. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, says Peter, and God's ways are mysterious. Let me illustrate. Mysterious. In the 1920s, Joseph Stalin ordered a purge of all the Bibles and believers in Russia. Get rid of them. Thousands of Bibles were taken and believers were sent to prison where many died of being enemies of the state. There was one warehouse where many of those Bibles had been hidden. They hid them away. So later in the post-Stalin era, a truck with several Russians was dispatched to help load those Bibles for redistribution. One of the Russians in that truck was a young man, a very skeptical, hostile, agnostic university student who had come only to get paid for the job. As they loaded the Bibles, another man noticed that the student had disappeared Where was he? Finally, they found him in a corner of the warehouse weeping. He had slipped away, true story, he had slipped away with a Bible he had taken for himself. And it turns out, when he opened that Bible, it pierced his heart, for on the inside page, 
he found the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It was her personal Bible. So out of the thousands of Bibles that remained in that warehouse, he stole the one Bible that belonged to her, a woman who had been persecuted for her faith. Now, some will say coincidence. The Bible says God is sovereign. But not only should we be encouraged by his sovereignty, but strengthened by his sufficiency. Now, this is a very broad subject, I understand, because the Lord is all-sufficient. But this text, I think, teaches us something about his sufficiency for his people. It reminds us that as a sovereign, he's able to fulfill all of his promises and do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Because before Philip, the Samaritans thought that they had the great power of God. They were amazed by Simon and his magic. But when Philip preached Christ, they witnessed true divine power. And it's no wonder they abandoned the Simon sorcery and turned to the living God. They didn't need anything else. Because God is for the believer an all-sufficient source of comfort and contentment. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing in this world can satisfy the God-shaped hollow in your heart. Nothing. He's sufficient to meet the need because he's everlasting. He gives life to all of his creatures and he can supply the needs of all mankind, but it's especially his saving and sanctifying grace that is sufficient for you and I. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Compared to him, no one is good. No one else is essentially good, supremely good, eternally good. His steadfast love is better than life, and every martyr testifies to that truth. What did God say to Paul the Apostle? My grace is sufficient for you. Let me give you another illustration, a little hook, as Sue would say. One night, while conducting an evangelistic meeting in the Salvation Army Citadel in Chicago, Booth Tucker, maybe you've heard of the name before, Booth Tucker, preached on the sympathy of Jesus. And after his message, a man approached him and said this, if your wife had just died like mine has and your babies were crying for their mother who would never come back, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. Jesus is sufficient. Tragically, true story, a few days later, Tucker's wife was killed in a train wreck. Her body was brought to Chicago and carried to the same citadel for the funeral. And after the service, the bereaved preacher looked down into the silent face of his wife and then turned to those attending and he said this, the other day a man told me I wouldn't speak of the sympathy of Jesus if my wife had just died. If that man is here, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient 
My heart is broken, but it has a song put there by Jesus. I want that man to know that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to me today. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In every condition, under every circumstance, we're blessed. Whether we're weak or strong, rich or poor, ignorant or learned, he's sufficient. And the Samaritans clung to that truth. And in many villages, Christ was preached, and I'm convinced that many more Samaritans were converted. And he's sufficient for you, if only you'll put your confidence in him. But I have to hasten to the end. Because we can be encouraged by his sovereignty, and we can be strengthened by his sufficiency, but also from this text, we can be comforted by his security. Luke says, they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And according to Paul, the believing Samaritans were sealed to the day of redemption. In whomever the Holy Spirit dwells, that person is kept by the power of God. We've heard that so many times that we just pass over it. The power of God keeps you. His influence in transforming your heart and life is the guarantee of heaven. And the simple fact that we believe, not perfectly, but sincerely, is proof that he lives in your heart. Those Samaritan converts knew that by God's grace they would be saved. They were secure. It's no different with us. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the work of grace in your soul is a good work. He never leaves his work unfinished. Never. God always brings it to completion. And he will not break bruised reeds. And he'll never quench smoldering wicks. He brings them to completion. The day will come. It will come. When we depart this earth for the blessedness of another world. And then we'll see him as he is, and we're told that we'll be made like him. Holy, blessed, immortal. Some of you are going through a difficult trial. And I wonder if you've meditated upon this truth. Try not to focus on yourself. Try with all of your might to dwell upon the security of Christ. God loves you. He chose you. You did not choose him. He chose you. And he's faithful. And no matter who you are or what you've done, if you're a Christian, he loves you with an everlasting love, past, present, future. And that's the truth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word in which we discover that you are sovereign, that you are sufficient, 
and that you are our security forever. May that truth sink deep into our souls and give us joy on this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.